disobedience is a moral weapon in the fight for justice. But how can disobedience ever be moral? Well, I guess that depends on one's definition of the word. Games are an incredibly powerful educational tool, but they don't fit well into our existing educational system, which is leading many people to a conclusion that our educational system must be reinvented. I'm incredibly optimistic that with this potential, we the people, we the change agents, individually and collectively, can ensure that this is the moment in history that we will celebrate in 500 years' time. Some would agree that the most beneficial results come from a path of many obstacles and a connection to many people. Welcome back to the UTPB Communication Files podcast. I'm your host, Caden Hayes. Joining me today is Texas Tech alum, UTPB adjunct professor, and one of my previous instructors, Kevin Thompson. Listen to his viewpoints on debate, competition, video games, and education, and the state of the change in the United States. Hi, uh, my name is Kevin Thompson. I am still a lecturer at UTPB until the fall where I'll transition into adjunct teaching. My background, I guess, in education, I graduated from Rising Star High School, and most of you probably don't know where that is because I had 21 people in my graduating class. We were such a small school that we uh, could not play 11-man football. We had to play six-man football because we just didn't have enough people at our school to play 11-man. After I graduated, I went to Texas Tech for my bachelor's and my master's degree originally from Texas, and uh, now I teach at UTPV. One thing, um, I do know where Rising Star is. I came from a really small school as well, which uh, I'm sure we've discussed before, but I come from Robert Lee. That's right. Uh, yeah, so... The golf uh, of small schools. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I definitely get um, the six-man football, the not having that many sports. So we didn't have the talent pool like places um, <laughs> like Abilene or uh, San Angelo right. or Midland or Odessa, they, they took all the talent. And so we were just left with the scraps. <laughs> and we, we never, we would never make it to state in anything. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, it was, it was really hard uh, being at these like, cause I rising star is not the only six man community that I had been to. I, I've lived all over Texas and mm-hmm. I've moved like 14 different times. And I would say at least half of those times, the communities that I lived in were in very rural, small communities. A lot of them were six-man football towns as they're known in Texas. It was it was definitely like a problem for like sports and extracurriculars. The only mm-hmm. thing that really like we were able to succeed in was debate. And that's what got me into college anyway. So, okay. Yeah. And I wanted to touch a little bit more on that here in a second. I do want to ask since you had, you have such a like small town background, how do you think that you've blossomed as a person going through college and just to this point in your life? Sure. Yeah. So I think it's a blessing and a curse that I moved a lot and especially lived a lot in smaller rural communities it's a it's a curse in that we didn't have a whole lot of resources at those places and so it was often a culture shock when i moved to or lived in bigger communities and and that was a challenge but it was also a blessing because i also got to see a diversity of different people and ideas and be around a lot of different people that acted differently i remember my freshman year of high school, um, I moved to a place in South Dallas called DeSoto. And I after that moved to a place in uh, outside of Denton called Ponder. Uh, And DeSoto being a 5A, maybe now it's a 6A school. uh, I mean, it's the home of Von Miller. It is a very, very popular sport, big South Dallas community. you know, over 90% of the the school, the freshman campus that I was on was black. And then in mid school, uh, like mid school year, I moved to Ponder. 
and it's a two-way school there's maybe like 80 people in my class the majority of people are white right and and so mm-hmm. um that those like very different communities uh it was it was a culture shock like switching back and forth to those uh but at the same time it helped me understand like people's different identities and how they thought and how they operated um and how you know what what not just like what are the needs of those communities but also how those people like to learn right and i think that's to answer your question how how i've blossomed uh into like this kind of role as a teacher now is that i i try to allow those experiences to not like i don't like to just look back on them and think about all the things i did or didn't have but rather use those as a learning experience and try to inform my teaching in those ways, right? So I teach, I know at UTPB, I teach a very diverse student body, both uh, racially, economically, you know, religion, all those different things. And I try to get that to inform my teaching. Um, I try to have that background of diversity that I was very privileged to have to like inform how I engage my students. Mm-hmm. And so why did you get into the... A study of communication. My background in high school, the thing that I enjoyed doing the most was speech and debate. So going every Saturday to like a speech tournament or a debate tournament, and just I say yelling at people at the top of my lawn uh, for hours on end. That's not really how it works. You 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 speak eloquently, sometimes very quickly. Um, uh, every other weekend, every weekend to a different tournament rather it be in the state of Texas or even across the country. Um, I liked that so much as a high school student that I wanted to do it in college. That's where I uh, got into Texas Tech, and I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to debate there. I liked it so much even after my undergraduate career that I wanted to go back and teach it and coach it on the collegiate level. So I did that and got into the master's program at Texas Tech in communication studies. So I could coach debate as well as teach things like public speaking. My, I guess what got me into communication was debate. Um, and if you think about it, debate is just communication. It is, a, it is an activity. It is a competition of who can communicate things better. And that's kind of how my brain works anyway. I'm a really competitive person. And I think that's probably why I study sports so much. Uh, is because I just, I really like competition. And it's not even that I like winning. I just hate losing. Um, yeah. and, and that kind of just informs how I like the, my, my, my drive to, to do better. It's just that I don't want to suck. And so, <laughs> and so, yeah, that's, uh, the debate got me into college. It got me into a master's program and it's definitely got me into teaching. Mm-hmm. And to kind of go off on a little tangent here, can you kind of describe what these debate competitions were like? for those like who are unaware? <laughs> sure, yeah, so there's many different kinds of speech and debate. The kind that I was really into what is, is called policy debate, and in college, I primarily competed in what is called parliamentary debate. And so most debate formats, at least at the really competitive and national circuit levels, a lot of these tournaments, you'll have anywhere between like 20 to 60 different teams, and if it's a national tournament, well over 100 to 200 teams from across the country. I liked the two on two kind of debates where you had a partner and you will sit in a room with your partner as well as your two competitors. And there will usually be a judge or maybe a panel of judges in the room. And what you'll do is you'll talk about a topic, rather the topic changes every round or there's one resolution all year and you'll debate that topic for anywhere between like 45 minutes to two hours. And at the end of the debate, the judge will evaluate who won that debate and then will give a decision on who won that debate to the competitors as well as to the coaches. And so on the national circuit, sometimes it can get really loud and really crazy. There are a lot of documentaries about like people speaking at 400 words a minute and things like that. I did that for a little bit. Um, and that was a lot of fun. People are like yelling at each other, gasping for air. Um, it, it sounds, it sounds dumb because it, it definitely, 
lacks in its like communication <laughs> quality, right? But it's still communication, right? You're still trying to make as many arguments as you can in a short amount of time. I definitely can't speak that fast anymore. I am I'm not practiced anymore. But it is it was a lot of fun, especially getting to see different parts of the world uh, or parts of the country mm-hmm. on the university's dime as a student and getting to, you know, argue about politics or, you know, foreign policy issues, domestic policy issues, social issues, things like that. It really was a, a great time. And for those that are listening that are interested in speech and debate, um, UTPB does not have a speech and debate program, but there are classes that are sometimes offered throughout the course rotation that are about speech and debate. And so I'd encourage you to check those out. Or if you're a high school student that's listening to this that is considering going to UTPB, check out your own high school debate team. You probably have one. And if you don't, just start one. I started one. And it's not that hard. You just have to have a coach. Um, and so, yeah, that's what speech and debate is. I guess for those people that are interested in speech and debate, what are some like skills or tips that you have for them uh, if they want to succeed? So I think there are three main skills you have to have to be a good debater. One is you have to have a competitive drive. You just have to think that like competition is good and you value that. And it's not that you always have to win. Uh, for me, I don't even care about winning. I just don't want to lose, right? Um, when you are competing at these tournaments, especially having other people around you that are super competitive makes you want to be more competitive, right? Number two is research skills. I think the best thing that debate taught me, the most portable skill as it's often referred to in debate, that debate teaches people is the ability to research because you can create a 100-page file of different carded evidence in a weekend and all of your friends are off like doing crazy things having fun being kids and you're sitting at home uh, with your laptop just trying to cut a new file updates for this new tournament that's coming up uh your ability to research is definitely enhanced with with debate you know i teach the, the freshman seminar there are so many students that go into college that don't know how to use a library and or just like access articles online beyond just Googling, right? And so, and debate prepares you for that. And, and I think that that's a really useful skill. The other thing that is really important to, to get into speech and debate that I think is a skill that's useful to have or something that if you're wanting to enhance it, you should look towards speech and debate. And that is just your oratory and presentation skills. You know, I, I am a, I'm a huge person. I'm six foot five. I'm enormous. Yeah. I'm, I'm an enormous person. And, and one thing that really helped me kind of like deal with, cause I, I, you know, growing up being a huge person, you, most people growing up, they have like body issues, their body's changing, and they don't know how to deal with that, right? Well, yeah. I was like a foot taller than everybody else, right? <laughs> so, and so one of the things that really helped me was like, using that imposingness in a way that was uh, more gentle, right? Um, and one of the ways that I could do that was by practicing different oratory styles, different speaking styles that were more calming and inviting. And I could do that with debate, you have to be able to speak with some kind of like, I don't know, I don't know the term for it, but eloquence. eloquence. Yeah, you have to speak with some kind of eloquence in order to succeed in debate. And rather that be speaking at 400 words a minute or in a lot of other tournaments, because that's not the only kind of debate there is most in fact, most I would say most debate is not speaking really, really fast. I wouldn't even say that that's even the better kind of debate. I think a, a lot of times the better debates are slower, they're eloquent, they're, you know, people are almost memorizing certain parts of their speeches, you know. And, and I think that, that that's a really helpful skill that you can learn in debate. But I also think that that's something that if you're good at it originally, then debate can definitely be a good outlet for you to just win a whole bunch of things, get scholarships, things like that. I guess like the last thing I want to touch on, like with debate is and I, I think you would like the terminology you use was there ever a time or a moment where you had to clutch the win by throwing a hail mary and you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> and <laughs> so I, you see where i'm going with this yeah, i do i do uh <laughs> so you know it's it's funny you mentioned this because um 
there's a there's a there's a rule that if you get more than one debater in a room, uh, you're going to debate. Uh, or you're going to talk about debate. And so there's this thing amongst college debaters where you say, the, and I don't know if this is appropriate or not for the podcast, but you say, uh, take a drink for talking about debate. Uh, and that just happens when you get uh, more than one debater in a room, you always will talk about debate. And usually what you talk about are old like war stories of you competing back in the day. Uh, and uh, so all that to say in that debaters usually have like a really good memory of things that happen in debates. And I definitely can remember a lot of like the good wins and the good losses or the good wins and like the really bad losses, I guess. And there there are two that come to mind for like the really like the Hail Mary kind of ones. So my high school debate partner, Stephanie Lowther, Stephanie, if you're listening to this, uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, We were at nationals and it was at NCFL Nationals, Nath, uh, National Catholic Forensics League Nationals in Washington, D.C. And we broke that tournament. But uh, and that was the first time like a six man football size school had broken at a national tournament like that. So uh, uh, it was a big deal that we had broke. But one of the, the rounds that we won, we picked up ballots at that was like really you know, I don't know, it was a really competitive round and really a hyper technical round was we were going up against this team that was one of the best teams in the country. They were Glenbrook North. They had what we call nine TOC bids. You only need two bids, which is basically you com- compete well enough at a tournament to, to qualify to the tournament of champions. And this is like the most prestigious high school debate tournament that there is. You have to be the top 1% of 1% of debaters to come get to this tournament and they qualified nine times. Uh, so like they qualified nine times over. Uh, so all that to say, and that we knew going into this round, we were probably going to lose, right? We knew that we were going to lose. And at this tournament, there are two judges per round and they split ballots. Uh, to, and whoever has the most ballots at the end, you know, wins. Well, we wound up taking a ballot from them, which to us is like a win. I know that we wanted both ballots, but we knew going into it, these these two high school debaters, they were both seniors. They had like four different coaches that were prepping them before the tournament or before the round. Stephanie and I were just looking at each other like we were we were eating donuts before the round. Like we we knew that going in, we were just about to get our um, you know our butts kicked, and. So we go in, we're like, you know what, let's just have fun this round. Let's try something we've never done before. There's this argument in debate called wipeout. And wipeout is essentially the idea that human extinction is good because if we don't become extinct, then aliens will kill us all. And in a world where we don't become extinct, uh, alien enslavement will be worse than any death brought out by like you know, a global nuclear war, right? And so basically, it's a way of saying that their impacts that the the other team says are bad, which is like, we all become dead in a world where we don't pass this plan. We're saying that's good, because otherwise, aliens will just take us over. And that'll make our lives even worse, right? It's the dumbest argument, right? It is it is it is absolutely asinine, you have to prove that not only aliens exist, but they are here to enslave us, right? Um, well, they just dismiss this argument as like dumb and stupid and they're and, and they do a good job of answering it but we have this like one scenario that's like it, it says if we don't die now not only will aliens enslave us but like we're going to come up with even worse weapons later and one of their own pieces of evidence said that uh, the pro- proliferation of weapons of mass destruction will get infinitely worse. So we just use their own evidence against them, right? It was still a dumb argument. We They literally just have to say aliens don't exist and sit down, right? Well, they don't do that. And so we wound up pulling a ballot from this nine times over TOC qualified team. Um, and it like shook the tournament and we wound up uh, going to outrounds and breaking the outrounds because of that ballot uh because they just like didn't take the argument seriously uh and they shouldn't have right but it was they they didn't answer it and so we wound up pulling a ballot from one of the best teams high school teams in the country 
Um, so that's like my Hail Mary story in high school. The Hail, Hail Mary story in college is, oh man, uh, it was, it was a loss. Uh, it was my last, uh, round ever. And, um, my debate partner, Joey kind of audibled at the last second and, uh, went for an argument that he probably shouldn't have. And we wound up losing, uh, on a five, four decision that would have sent us to the national championship round. Uh, and it was a very, very uh, close debate. I think I cried for like 45 minutes after that round because it was like my last like uh, round ever to compete in. Yeah, like debate becomes like incredibly emotional at times too. Like winning a national mm -hmm. championship was like, is like all debaters want to do. And we were so close. We got third. Um, and uh, yeah, um, that Hail Mary didn't work out for us, but the the one in high school did. And it was, it was off of like aliens killing us all, which is super dumb like we i want to say we were having a top like a debate about like the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction in iran and then like we were just like no nah, let's talk about aliens and we wound up winning <laughs> about it so i mean just the same as debate like it's sounds like just pretty much any sport kind of going back to the small town roots when i was on my junior high and jv basketball teams we only had five players so when we were going up against other schools with more people, they had clearly like 10 to 12 people on, on each team. So <laughs> we would, we would constantly lose, of course. And, but it wasn't like these incredible blowout games. It was always like two, maybe three points. Maybe it was nothing crazy, but it was always, it was just enough where we were on the cusp of success and then it just the rug gets pulled out from under us we were in tears because we were so close to finally winning yeah it's funny like sports are just these like emotionally gripping things what positions did you play like what fourth and positions did you play okay so to kind of go into it um when i basically from elementary all the way up to like my freshman year in high school, I was a post player. So I played down at the block next to the next to the rim because I was taller. I wasn't that big. So I wasn't the greatest at blocking out. Yeah. Uh, AKA getting people out of the proximity of the rim so they can't grab the ball when someone shoots it. Right. And so I was opposed for forever. And I was like I said, I was all right at it. But then I was playing a JV game my sophomore year and i was like the only sophomore on the jv team because i wasn't that great so <laughs> but when we went to this tournament a town over and i had of course four other like freshmen with me i just popped off at the the wing like i was a really good like left wing player i i think i got like 26 points that game like all right yeah, yeah I, we still lost that game somehow <laughs> you put the team on your back though like that's, i put the that's team right. on my back i was carrying them so much they just they just had the worst case of the butterfingers and the not know how to plays you know and <laughs> oh man that's fantastic uh the and i love that what compounds this into an even better story is that like you're amongst a bunch of freshmen and a jv team uh like like reliving these moments of like uh carrying your jv team to close victory but never <laughs> yeah it was like it's, it's like the most insignificant like pop-off story because we yeah. never won those games yeah. Oh man, I, that's how that's how like talking about uh, debates are too. Uh, but especially sports, because like most people, at some point in their life, has have competed in some kind of sporting event. I, well, I don't know about most people, but a lot of people have competed sports mm -hmm. at some point in their life, and usually it's not at the like top tier, like top five or one percent of athleticism on your varsity squad that one state like most of the time it's like <laughs> like yours and mine like i was so bad at 
at football and basketball. I was so bad at sports because I was just like massive and slow. Uh, but I was enough of a problem to get in the way. So they just put me on. <laughs> <laughs> like they just put me in places so that people would have to run around me. Um, so and, and I feel like that's like that resonates with a lot of people because like most most people that uh, play sports are not going to like go pro. They're just doing it. Mm-hmm. Because it's the thing to do, right? Um, yeah. Uh, but that's that's funny that you uh, were the the goat of your JV squad. Um. Yeah, and it was funny because like I was the only one basically making points. So our JV coach would literally have all the other four freshmen literally just block out the my spot for me like literally like just they're like the play was give Kate in the ball and block out so nobody can interfere with it and i was like thank you <laughs> finally some recognition as, as you hoist that nbp trophy above your head and you <laughs> all the way to the loser's locker yeah, right. <laughs> amongst a bunch of 15 year olds that are just now sprouting <laughs> facial hair yes <laughs> oh man what is your take on esports i know that's kind of like a controversial topic like what do you think about uh the leagues of esports and do you think they're um as significant as like traditional sports uh, yes and yes. I think that the the esports are not only are they intriguing to study, which is like a whole other conversation, but just from like the spectator and fan standpoint, it's fantastic. Uh, I I'm big fan of esports. I don't watch a whole lot of them. I did watch a little bit of of Overwatch League when it first came out, and that was that was quite a trip because not only do these esports do they pack stadiums in ways that sports wish they could right that i mean mm-hmm. there are more people that would attend like an esport like mega tournament in south korea than the super bowl i bet mm-hmm. and i don't have much to back that up i could be completely wrong there but i'm pretty sure that they uh that a lot of esport games or games that have like bigger esport followings could probably pack some arenas maybe pre-covid 19 uh better than a lot of major sport events i know many people that would rather go see some esport league tournament more so than like cleveland browns game and and, and so you know and so i think from a spectator standpoint it's definitely a real thing i think from an investment standpoint it's a great opportunity for you know sport owners to you know, market things a little differently, but I, I do have my concerns as well. I, I think that you hear these horror stories from people in the esport communities that they're practicing 18 hours a day, only getting like four hours of sleep. And that, that, those labor practices within esports, because it's such an unregulated industry, I think is a major issue that's worth talking about because it is an industry that is new. It doesn't have like, ownership proper other than uh donations and sponsors and and i think that if you're going to have like major esport leagues you have to make clear standards of what is acceptable for practice and what is acceptable for um you know what is okay to to say and what not to say i think that in today's culture because most of these esports are streamed mm-hmm. the the ability for an esport player to you know say the wrong thing or say something that's you know bad and get all of their you know sponsorships pulled i i think that they, it costs it calls for more you know things like sensitivity training within esports it calls for you know engaging with different communities within esports because i from and this is again purely anecdotal because i don't watch a whole lot of esports i would imagine that there are a lot of like Korean players, Chinese players, and then like white American players, right? I definitely know that there's a gender problem within esports. It's the only thing that demographically speaking that I can really speak on is that I know that there's a a, a gender problem. And this is true not just in esports, but in in just video games in general, right? A lot of video games are just tailored towards men. And I think that when you get into 
those kinds of of first person shooters and stuff, there's definitely like a gender gap. And I think that it's the responsibility of people that have the power to donate and sponsor and maybe even own franchises or teams to make it more accessible to different identities. And so that's like a that's that's a main concern that I have is how do we make esports accessible when it should be, generally speaking, more accessible than sports? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think traditional sports kind of have an edge in popularity among like the general population. I mean, esports is still huge. Like I'm pretty sure that I think League of Legends, uh, one of the biggest esports leagues in the whole world has like constantly more viewers at their like national tournaments than like the Super Bowl on a yeah. regular basis. No, I, so. I would definitely believe that. And you're right that like not only is it more popular but it's gaining more popularity faster, right? Not mm-hmm. only is it currently more popular, but you have generations of like your brother and sister that's older than you that's playing LOL on the computer. And then like, you, you know, your little brother and sister is watching that and being like, I want to play that too. You know, um, that's yeah. easier for people to get into because it's more direct. It's less you know, there's less fandom involved. It's more, you know, direct to the computer and engagement with strategy. It's more, you know, intriguing to like younger viewers than just watching a sport on a TV, right? So, so you're, you're right. Like, not only does it have like more viewership, but it also has a faster growing viewership than any other industry. Since traditional sports are just generally more accepted as it's almost like a lifestyle in a way, and esports or maybe video games maybe aren't seen as beneficial in the long run, how do you think these views would change if places like schools that implement traditional sports on a regular basis, even like within their curriculum, how do you think their views on esports and video games would change if they were implemented into like a grade school curriculum or kind of just going through school in general? Right. So I think that that would be a fantastic thing because for me, I know in high school, I would have gravitated towards esports more than actual sports. Um, like just like purely from a anecdotal and personal standpoint, I was not athletic at all. And sports, the only sport that I actually felt like I was good at or like better than other people at my school at was golf, but it required very little athleticism, right? It just required you to be smarter and more strategic with how you hit a ball, right? And mm-hmm. so for me, I would have really enjoyed having an esports team or community. And I think that would have I would have enjoyed that for two main reasons. One is because I was not athletic and I would have been able to compete at a higher level with it. But also it teaches you winning and losing, in my opinion, in a more well-rounded way mm-hmm. than maybe traditional sports can. And 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 I take that from the perspective of Traditional sports, a lot of times you're on a team of like maybe five, two, five, eleven people, you know, 60 people. And an esports team, it is you, there are specific maps or specific types of play that require you to have different strategies for different like elements, right? While it's like a, a football or a basketball team has a game plan going in, they have a scouting report going in. And it's very similar, but there's more because there's just more elements involved. There's more strategy involved in esports, right? Because there's more maps, there's more teams, there's more, you know, people to scout in different areas of the map, right? Um, And and, and so there's just more strategy involved in in esports and preparation for esports than a lot of sports. I'm not going to say in every instance, but in a lot of sports, uh, uh, there's more strategy involved in preparing for an esport tournament. Or, and that especially is true in implementing a curriculum. So to answer your question outright, um, I think that it would be a great thing for esports to be adopted in high school, middle school, even elementary school, and as well as college curriculums, because I think that it it gravitates towards those individuals that don't have the top five or 1% of athleticism and is more accessible to people just because it's easier to pick up a joystick than it is to run a 40 yard dash. 
Um, and, And not only that, but it gets people interested in the varying degrees of competition because there for me i'm the kind of video game player that like i will play leisurely when i have the time uh i am not the kind of person that you know speed runs games or like is incredibly competitive with games because that's what i enjoy doing but if you're going to pick up a sport i feel like many times that expected level of competition is already there right how many times did a coach ever tell you on your basketball team like um if you're not here to win it you know get out of the out of the gym right or yeah all the time right that is the expectation right but you can pick up a video game and put it back down right um uh you know and so i think that there's like a varying level of like um competitive growth competitive understanding uh strategy that is just different i don't want to say it's better or worse but i think it definitely requires more attention than a lot of traditional sports do right um uh, and so i think that it would be a good thing for youth to be able to engage in that and and esports are really intriguing in that regard because it's such an underdeveloped thing here at least in the united states uh, uh, where there's a lot of spot- sponsorship involved, but there's not like a whole lot of like structure to it yet because a lot of it's just on streaming platforms. And so I think it's a great opportunity for for schools to kind of like set their own frameworks for how that works and benefits their students uh, rather than like a traditional sports setting. And I agree with that because I know a lot of schools are implementing uh, teaching tools with video games like Minecraft and other games like that, where it's teaching them kind of like these larger scale uh, teaching points through video games, because it's just kind of easier to recollect. And but <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I know I know what you're getting at, and, and yeah. so to give you even a little bit more there, uh, I I really contemplated. I wound up not doing it because I needed to default back to research that's already been done mm-hmm. uh, but i'm going to be teaching sport communication in the fall at utpb oh really yeah i really wanted to put part of the class online uh, i wanted to have half of the class to play either runescape or world of warcraft uh because those are those aren't like the typical like esports strategy games right they're not these mo- massive moba style games yeah. Uh, it, it is something that is, you know, getting into the realm of esport, right? And it's also the games that I know. And I really wanted to make that part of the curriculum because it, I wanted to immerse students into what it's like to have competitive, you know, things in within games and what that means for interacting with other people to get what you want in those games, especially like those MMORPGs. I wanted students to be able to reflect on their experience and how they could make this into like a competitive game competitive game right um because there are ways that you can do that and there are ways that that has already been done Uh, but the problem with that is is that like getting students into a subscription of these games a lot of them are i know for me it's one thing to force a student to buy a textbook it's another thing Mm -hmm. to force them into something that they have no idea what they're doing right and like yeah going into a world of mages and orcs and (laughs) uh is maybe not people's cup of tea and i didn't want to force that on anyone but but I, i thought about that for the longest time should i incorporate an online game uh to talk about sport communication i went not doing it because of access issues but it's something that i see a lot you're right like it is a growing thing on in the on the university level there are a lot of places and universities and classes that are offering like minecraft classes or wow classes or wall classes to teach their stuff and i think that's especially important now that we are going to incorporate more distance learning because of COVID, that's people are going to have to start thinking about that and implementing those strategies more so. Like, I don't think it's a matter of if, but when. That becomes more of a widespread thing on at least the university level to incorporate teaching into into gaming. Mm-hmm. If you did implement that class where people had to get like a World of Warcraft uh, subscription, like you get like the athletes that really don't play games, they just get some some nerd to boost their account. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, oh yeah, just you know, just you're like, you literally get to play World of Warcraft for college credit. 
that'd be sweet yeah, <laughs> yeah i would i and I, I really wanted to do it because like it's something that i've always wanted to do and i know that in my own doctoral program there are classes at ua that are offered in video game format i don't think there's any on the doctoral level but i know mm-hmm. that on the undergrad level there are and so i might just see like what that's about and maybe one of these days in an adjuncting class from utpb if i can play my cards right and get it done i know that i would have the support of other department faculty and that have the support of student success center because i think that those kinds of strategies especially for distance learning i think are important to incorporate but uh and i think that other people would agree with that it's just Mm -hmm. a matter of like figuring out how to do it best because i don't want to mess it up and i also want to make sure that like what you said i don't want to have like (laughs) i don't want to have students that are just having their like nerd friends like play wow for 50 minutes a day to like do their class for them you know what i mean My only experience with WoW is actually, like, before I moved up here to Pennsylvania, uh, I was playing a goblin character. I went through the entire tutorial world, which took, like, literally, like, six hours. It was, it took... It does take a long time, yeah. So, a fun fact, uh, Mike Frawley, Dr. Frawley from the New Success, still plays World of Warcraft multiple times a week with his spouse uh, and with, like, a group of friends. I think I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. And I probably would still be playing it. I met my college roommates on World of Warcraft. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, We wound up all going to Texas Tech and we just found each other on like an open world, like not guild chat, but like an open world chat. And we knew of each other kind of before that because we used to compete in similar like football uh, circles and six man mm-hmm. football. And we all heard that, you know, there were uh, f- folks in these communities that were like playing like wow and things like that. But it wasn't until one person led to another led to another that we wound up getting in the same open world, same guild, same server. And we oh, wow. and uh, we became college roommates. We were best friends for years. And so I think <laughs> if you were to incorporate that uh, into like a college classroom, I think it could have that same level of camaraderie and like getting people to know each other. And I, I think it'd be a lot of fun. UTPB communication files, side B. So, Kevin, I have a hypothetical for you. Sure. Assuming if college professors and faculty were all paid the same and maintained the same standard of teaching, if college became more affordable, was easier for more individuals to take part in, what sort of changes would you see uh, with our society? That's a good question. I don't want to say that education solves every problem, because I think that the systems of education themselves have still roots in discrimination and, you know, other various issues. But I do think that if college became more affordable uh, and it was easier to access and there was some equity, not only in the teaching aspect of like pay, but also in the representation of different demographics within teaching, I think that that would benefit in two main ways. One, uh, I think that we would have a more tolerant and okay, I I won't say tolerant, but uh, I will say that I I think that we would have more of an open idea to different perspectives and we will be able to understand the validity of those perspectives better and so the best example of this is like literacy and media right um Mm -hmm. i think that college definitely provides an outlet for a lot of people to become more media literate and that's why the like and again this is purely anecdotal but i'm sure that there are a lot of studies about this that the higher level of a college education the more likely you are to be able to spot things like fake news, right? Or like conspiracy theories. That isn't to say that people within college don't also engage in that, you know, sharing like a fake news article on Facebook. But I think that you are more likely to to see those things for what they are and your research capacity and skills would be better. And I also think that access to education is a very important tool for making the quality of life of a society better. Education doesn't solve all problems. And I think in order to make education like a de facto way of like solving a lot of problems, you have to solve the system of education first, which requires Mm -hmm. major educational reform. But I do think that if in a perfect world in this utopian society where the faculty of a university reflected the, you know, demographics of a society, 
and they taught classes that were reflective of a utopian progressive you know society that that I think that that would really benefit uh, a lot of people and and I think that society would be able to sustain itself in a more productive and long-term way. I think another good example of that is, you know, and not trying to get too political, but uh, alternative energy and, um, you know, issues of sustainability on the planet. I think those issues are easier to talk about when people have more of an education and have more of a research idea of how those things are productive for the quality of our environment um, than folks that don't have an education and don't know the benefits or the pros and cons of sustainability projects. Uh, okay. So, I, and I know that's like a very general way of thinking of uh, of it. It's just an example, though, that I, I think that more access to education is almost always good. But I think that if we really want to make society better, uh, uh, not only is it a matter of access to education, but reflecting how that education actually reflects society would take massive educational reforms in it. And I think that that's something that's very attainable, but it's just a matter of political and social will to do that. And I think looking back at our history, um, people already kind of thought of their own utopia. And, but I believe Plato had placed like aristocracy uh, where people are more educated on a lot of different topics where they were kind of like, in his utopia would be like the leaders of society, those who were very well educated. And his idea of like just this perfect utopia was that everyone was educated and everyone had their roles. And to a point, there was a class system, but everyone was somewhat equal, at least gender wise. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're, you're right. That, uh, that, that was the idealized society. And I, and I still think that that's something that we should strive to do. I think it, create it, it requires massive fundamental changes that can only happen in major sh you know shifting ways but mm -hmm. but 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 you're but you're right in that like that ideal society I, I don't think that more access to education hurts but i do think that in order to get this ideal society you have to reform the systems that created that rather be discrimination or inequity in the first place right um mm -hmm. uh, and so so yeah i think that that's a good question. I think that education is important and access to education is incredibly important. That's why I'm, I'm in it is so I can reach more people. But I also think that reform or changing the systems that allowed uh, such issues to exist in the first place is, is necessary too. Do you think that our society needs, I guess, to say another renaissance era <laughs> in a way? Like, do you think we're already kind of building up towards this uh, boost in creative outlets and education? Or do you think we just, as a whole community, as a whole group of like people here around the world, do you think a renaissance, so to say, would be like super beneficial? I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess it depends on your definition of renaissance. I, I think that like a massive... If you if you want my perspective on like uh, how I think society w is best to progress, I think that a lot a lot of systems have to be completely dismantled before we can be enlightened on how to make those things better. And so right now the big sexy topic is is policing, right? Because you know everything that's happening with the protests of the of the murder of George Floyd and how people are reacting to policing. The Minneapolis City Council had a veto-proof majority to to disband their their police department, uh, which is insane to me. Um, it, yeah, uh, not insane as in the bad thing, but like insane as in like I never for once in my life have I thought that within my lifetime a major city that is you know home to hundreds of thousands of people would have the political and social will to change the concept of policing. Uh, which is a major institution, I, I recognize that that is a major shift in our political momentum to get things done. Um, and so in that perspective, uh, to go back to your question of a renaissance, I think that we're kind of already experiencing right now some kind of renaissance or revolution to change some of the dramatic shifts or change some of the dramatic structures uh, as they currently exist right now in. Um, in Seattle, who knows if this like 
really goes anywhere. Uh, time will tell, but um, you've probably heard of the autonomous community in mm-hmm. Seattle that is being settled in like the in the middle of like the heart of the city. Because I, I don't know how uh, how much on this podcast I'm like like allowed to disclose my own like personal you know beliefs or politics or whatever, but I'm very moved by the collective will of of people to challenge and change structures of, of violence and oppression that have especially been targeting black communities for such a long time. I'm very moved by that. And I think that that is the, the, the start of our renaissance, if you will, in that we're not going to just be pacified by reforming things. We need to completely change the structures of them. And I think going back to your first question about education, access to education, and if that makes society better, I think that once we're done with reforming police, I think that it then becomes a question of other structures, including education. How do we make those better? And I don't know if that's going to happen within my lifetime, but I hope it does. And I think that we are currently living in the renaissance of our lifetime to try to make society better. And it's going to be violent and it's going to suck uh, at times. But I also think that it's worth something. And, and that's that's kind of where I'm at on that. I know that that's like a very you know generalized thing. But but that's those are my thoughts on the progress of the world right now. And yeah, I know that can be a bit of a touchy subject, but it's like you said, like it's an important conversation to have. And I feel like, you know, it's good to have everyone's viewpoints on it. So, yeah. So thanks, Kevin, for uh, coming on to the podcast. I I really appreciate you like sharing your stories of debate uh, coming through high school, like small town beginnings. And then to where you are now it's actually a really cool viewpoint uh, yeah i appreciate that i always give time at the end of the podcast for our guests to give shout outs and plug in any sites that they're a part of so is there anyone that you want to shout out uh yeah so i'll shout out uh, I, well this is weird because you're here but uh, i want to thank you for doing this podcast uh i want to thank uh you for doing a lot of our calm work um, on the social media platforms uh, for our department. Uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, the department themselves and, you know, the hard work that all of the lecturers, all of the adjuncts, all of the tenure track, as well as the tenured folks within our department, um, the, the good work that they do. You know, I really enjoy where I work and it's because of the students and it's because of the people within the department um, that make my job a lot easier. And so shout out to them and shout out to shout out to you. Yeah. Well, again, thank you uh, for coming on the podcast and uh, thanks for everyone who tuned in. For more updates about the UTPB communication program and the podcast, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at facebook.com slash and twitter.com slash utpbcom. For more information about the program, visit utpbcom.com.